Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Does it ever strike you as odd that we manage to inhabit two completely different realities at once? On one level, we have common sense and reason that orient us in the world. We make narrative sense of our own life and self and go about our day with a provisional yet perfectly satisfactory sense of what the hell we're doing. And on another level, we know basically nothing. Forget about dark matter and multiple universes. Just glance into the eyes of that stranger on the train. There's a whole world in there that you know nothing whatsoever about. I'm here today with Olga Tokarczuk, who won the Man Booker Prize this year for her book Flights and with the book's translator, Jennifer Croft. Flights is a patterned assemblage of sketches, short stories, fragmentary essays about travel, motion, and it kept striking me while reading it that her writing is about these two worlds that we always waver between, orientation and disorientation, trying to map things out and then getting lost inside our own maps. Welcome to Think Again, Olga and Jennifer. Hi, hello. I'm wondering, like, what are some of the big differences in how Americans are talking to you about your book from how people talk to you in Poland? No, because there is like no, such a, up no such a differences. You know that uh, it is always proof me that the translation is good. It is <laughs> the same question in my country and in the, the other country, foreign country. So it means only that the book was excellent translated. So thanks, <laughs> Jennifer. <laughs> so, I paid her a lot of money. To say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't want to push a point that if there's no point to pushing it, but I mean, so there's no, you're not noticing any cultural differences in the kinds of things that people observe or what they react to or like what shocks no, them or surprises them. Or of course, there, there, there are uh, small differences in, in reaction, in the way of talking, but not in a substance of, of interest or, uh, around this book. For instance, I'm very happy that uh, uh, Americans leader uh, readers they notice my dark humor in this book because mm. this is not so obvious for uh, for everybody. And here it is really it work it works. So there were some questions about uh, this matter matter of the dark humor and sense of humor in general. the The question is different because the book is old. It is. Mm. It, it was published ten years ago in Poland. Okay. So it means that it. It. Uh, I. I was in the process of writing even even earlier, like twelve, thirteen years ago. So um, many things changes changed very very strongly. For instance, way of traveling, um, um, presence of smartphones everywhere, right. um, where you are losing touch with human beings uh, under the counters on the airports and uh, train stations. So the and I think that uh, flight, for instance, the flight in general is not so exotic like it was for me for 13 years ago and for many people because but Americans are um, travelers from the beginning it's in the def in the, the definition of um, American to be on the move in motion, yeah. yeah, westward until we hit the ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so perhaps um, th this is also the good uh, access to this book by American readers. Mm. To be honest, I didn't expect uh, success of this book here in America. 
you know? So, Why is that? Uh, I had a feeling um, that um, Americans, American readers are much accustomed to the very classical realistic novel and such a novels coming from America to Poland. Yeah. So I had a, a different vision of uh, literary um, the, the market. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm also a little surprised, too, because I feel like Americans, I feel like the culture as I understand it or mm -hmm. the popular culture as I understand it is is impatient with things that do not mm -hmm. clearly lay mm -hmm. things out. And you deliberately disorient the reader in this book sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like you are... It's really interesting the way this book is constructed because there are, you know, there are fragments and they do add up to, there are patterns and there is a kind of whole to it and things disappear and they come mm -hmm. back. And, but um, I, I would have guessed that Americans would be impatient with that too. Mm -hmm. Like I want a beginning and a middle and an mm -hmm. end. I want to know who the characters are and what's going on, but maybe we're growing up. I don't think so that this is the question of uh, to be an adult reader, but uh, rather I think that uh, reality today is very demanding and there is no such a reality like it was 15 years ago yeah. that everything is linear and you understand what Republicans represent by themselves and then that there are white and black and everything was much in order just in the past. And now we have to live in a reality which is completely messy, chaotic, and we have to, you know, to use our antennas, you know, to, to navigate in this new world. Yeah, yeah. So perhaps we have to accustom to such a novel, to such a narratives. I mean, there is something I find um, reassuring and comforting in the way that you write, the way that you talk about patterns and maps and mm -hmm. making sense, but also the way that you kind of, you know, let those things dissolve. So it, it feels to me like a, like a dream. And you do write about dreams quite often. Mm -hmm. Everything is very meaningful. And there is lots of detail that is extremely important. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it can just... Mm -hmm. dissolve in a second and mm -hmm. and then we have to move on <laughs> yeah perhaps this is the you know the core of reality that it it is much more dreamy like than we really would like to admit and because what, what does it mean society what does it mean uh philosophy mm. religion we everything is fixed by our minds you know that uh and then media are doing very great job to to fix everything yeah to make an order to to show us where is what and what's going on and so on so yeah. but as a writer i'm interesting um, i'm interested in in more deeper level of this so <laughs> because i think that we 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 feel fed up of this old mm -hmm patterns we know from media. It doesn't work anymore, so something is false in it. Right. We have to face with folk news and um, and different way of uh, presenting us uh, information. And we uh, have an intuition that something is deeper. And then going to, to this deeper level, we can organize entire information in a different, wiser way. So it is also... Um, compelling uh, for for the for the reader to organize entire order in the different in the different perhaps better way yeah mm -hmm. yeah you and you and and so i mean to describe the book a little bit for readers there is fiction there is non-fiction yes i mean you're telling you i guess 
you tell me, but there are bits that seem to be anchored in reality, but then seem to spin off into fiction. Yeah, but using the ter terms of uh, fiction, <laughs> nonfiction is old order. You know, it okay. doesn't work anymore. We have uh, fake news showing that there is uh, uh, there is no such a you know um, border between uh, true and false and so on. I think that um, we should. Um, I would insist that this is a this is very realistic 21st century novel. Mm, mm. Fragmented because our world is fragmented. Mm. This novel reflects uh, reality we live in. This is we we perceiving rea reality like zipping on the television, you know. Sure, so we sure. have to collect everything and make one one thing as a representation. So this is realistic. We are traveling in fragments, for instance, jumping from uh, GFK Kennedy uh, to uh, Washington, for instance, and the the traveling we we have uh, all the time in our hands smartphones and just sinking into in another words you yeah. know watching movies at uh, the same time when we're traveling or eating or whatever so we are living in many realities at the same time so those uh, <laughs> real so-called realistic classical novels are not anymore realistic because they are an anachronistic because reality doesn't look like it looked in 19th century. I don't think that Olga's work suggests that there is no such thing as any reality or any limit between um, what is a lie and what is the truth, certainly in an ethical sure. sense. I don't think that that's what she's doing. I think it's interesting that Olga's taking into account that there is there are so many new ideas about the self, for instance, now that were not present when Tolstoy was writing or when mm. Flaubert mm. was writing. Mm. And we know that we are multiple creatures while also potentially being one individual, right. but probably more so the multiple creatures thing. And then she's just saying that reality is a fragmented thing, not not that it doesn't exist. So we live in these dispersed spheres in a way that we never could have before because the technology just wasn't there. Time has changed in a way because of the technology as it's evolved. Let's talk a little bit about this thing that, that happens in the book. There are a lot of stories or moments about anatomists and people that are preserving human tissue, like early embalmers, and then I guess the more modern techniques of plasticization, but essentially plastination. about plastination, okay, freezing the human body in, in its tracks. And this is kind of a contrast to this idea of motion that runs throughout the book. You have this idea that motion is essential to life, that motion is life in a sense. And the attempt to freeze motion is a, is a killing action. And at the same time, there's something else going on in all those descriptions. Like it's, it's not just a pure critique of all of those people that are trying to preserve and understand the human body. There's also some kind of positive like love for that attention to detail. For me, um Paying attention on details is uh, the, the the most important thing during my writing. So this is the 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 core of literature, I think. Um, details and uh, collection of details, because only using the details we can really, in a way, 
make the the sentences and language change it into experience into mm. into something which is um, is going to us through our senses so details details and details once again so that was the reason because i'm obsessed with details that i did a lot did a quite big research for this book yeah, yeah I clearly yeah mm-hmm. Yeah. And many such a, my small discoveries are never found out, found in in this uh, this book, because it will be it would be too much that it is just only a novel. But I spent I think like one two years studying history of anatomy in uh, Holland. At the same time, like there's a part in the book where you talk about how like about travel and about guidebooks and how guidebooks are an attempt to kind of preserve or collect relevant details about a place mm-hmm. and there isn't a there is a there is a critique of of the attention to detail of the trying to capture life either through freezing the body or writing it perfectly down in words that life it life wants to wants to move and doesn't want to be mm-hmm stopped that way yeah this is the uh, this book is an endless discussion between many points of view and the, it is ironic book because it the book tries to to show the society which is always uh, being on move and from the other side trying to uh, this society trying to uh, in a way create a kind of philosophy to be on move and uh, as a novel this is the not this uh, realistic classical way telling something with mission that right. the world is like this like this like this right. no the, my proposals are there are many proposals of perspectives and this is it should be it should be fun for the reader to take to to read something from this point of view and then jump to to the other point of view to to be to listen um a kind of incantations Uh, from this sect in Russia about <laughs> moving on, moving on, let's let's move, move on, and so on. And from the other side, to to read something about uh, a tissue, tissues of hum, from, from human body trapped in in a jug with formal uh, formalin. So, mm, yeah, there is no simple explanation. There's how, no one point th- of view. Yeah, this yeah. is not a lecture. This is not an essay this is not uh, the story from from the, the beginning to the end this is rather you know playing cards with many meanings and senses maybe we can talk a little bit about um travel psychology there is this idea in the book of travel psychology and these sort of lectures that are taking place just people giving lectures in airports mm-hmm. to travelers i'm psychologist from my profession so from time to time i'm this this psychological language coming back to me and then <laughs> i like to like a fish in the water and to like would like to to name something in this psychological fashion because this is uh, quite artificial language for right. many very regular human emotions and sometimes this psychological language is just funny but also to say something about traveling from this let's say quasi uh, scientific perspective right so, right so right this is a joke let's talk a little bit about translation as well 
Is it true that this is the first book that is being translated in English? I wouldn't think so, right. So there was something, though, that I read that said, like, English language debut. What what does that mean? I think it only means that it's kind of her breakthrough in English, but she was very expertly translated twice before by Antonia Lloyd-Jones in the UK um, many years ago. So House of Day, House of Night, and Primeval and Other Times are two excellent earlier novels by Olga Tokarczuk, translated really well, as I say. And those are probably going to be reprinted now. Sure. Um, and then there was a little bit of a lull while we were looking for a publisher for flights, which took 10 years. So maybe that's more than a little bit. Um, maybe reality had to catch up to the fragmentary <laughs> view of the novel. Yeah, yeah something, something <laughs> yeah. like that must yeah. have happened. And now actually Antonia has just published another translation of Olga's, which is her novel that came out right after this in Polish, which is called Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. Mm -hmm. um, so that just came out in the UK and it'll be coming out with Riverhead here in the US uh, next year. So for you as the translator, what were some of the major preoccupations and issues that came up? I like that we mentioned sense of humor before. So I think that that's something that I tried to make sure. Sense of humor is one of the hardest things to preserve. You're not exactly preserving anything. You're taking everything apart and then building something new right. out of the pieces. But to transmit, I guess. It's hard to transmit humor. But it's really important because Olga is tackling such heavy issues. I mean, she, and it's such an ambitious book. So it's taking on not only modernity, but sort of humankind. Right. And without that intermittent lightness of tone, I think the book would be such a failure. And then there's also something so accessible about her prose, so appealing about this kind of lyrical, rhythmic prose that she has. Um, another thing that I really tried to pay attention to is the way that she kind of builds networks of associations through words, okay. which connect otherwise seemingly disconnected fragments. So one example of that is the title of the book, which is in the original Polish, Biguni, which um, is the name of the Russian Orthodox sect that believed that in order to escape the devil, you had to remain in motion perpetually. And it's not a common word in Polish, but the root of it suggests running. So an early proposal for the title not made by me was runners, and I rebelled against that because I didn't like the association of just like joggers, right, which right. is so banal and so not representative of the book. And which also kind of, which also implies escape, which fails to capture the other meaning, the many other meanings of flight in the in the book. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the point is it has many meanings. So it does mean running away, fleeing, flight, taking flight. Um, but then also it's just regular old plane travel and flights of fancy right. and other associations like that. And I and I found that I could repeatedly employ the that 
flights in different meanings throughout the different sections. So it was a way of connecting them. Are there structural differences between the Polish language and the English language that are consistent kind of hurdles that you have to deal with? In broad strokes, are there some like characteristic differences between the two languages that present an interesting problem in translation? Yeah, so my favorite one is syntax, which Uh is so much sexier than it sounds. (laughs) (laughs) Syntax is sexy. I'll I'll back you up on that. Thank you so much. (laughs) I really appreciate it. No, so it's something that people have been thinking about. Walter Benjamin wrote this great essay called The Task of the Translator that no one really understands. But um, he talks about, I mean, I also don't really understand it. He talks about something that he calls the way of meaning, um, which I started thinking about as word order through an essay by Samuel Weber, a philosopher. Mm. Susan Bernofsky, a wonderful translator of German literature, has also talked about the importance of trying to keep intact, if not the exact word order, then at least the emphasis of an individual sentence. So I think of it as kind of micro suspense. Okay. So the order in which information is given to you can be really important, even though it might seem at first glance like it doesn't really matter that much. And the thing with Polish is that they have a much better developed grammar, or rather, in English, we lost our grammar over the course of the centuries. Mm. The Germanic English took in the Romance language um, when the French invaded. And then we incorporated other elements as well, and the grammar began to break down. So we have an amazing lexicon, we have an amazing vocabulary, Mm. which no other language can rival. But we don't have, word order is essential in English because there's no other way of showing what the relationships between the words are. Okay. Whereas in a language like Polish, the endings of the words change depending on how it's being used in the sentence. So if I say, Jennifer eats a sandwich, you know what I'm talking about, but if I say a sandwich eats Jennifer, mm-hmm. it starts to confuse slash alarm you. Right. But because of the ending of sandwich in Polish, I could put it either way, and it would just shift what you know when and what is emphasized. I see. Sometimes I feel the danger of automatically changing the word order just to what is more common in English, and sometimes that can be a mistake because it really shifts the the nature of the text. Um, so there are cases in, in which you're trying to preserve that suspense of the original syntax. Yeah. E- even if the sentence in English is not in quite a familiar configuration. It yeah. should read smoothly, I guess, but... Exactly, but dot, dot, dot. I mean, yeah. I also think that that... So Lawrence Venuti was really important in changing the way we think about translators with a book called um, The Translator's Invisibility. So I think it's really important that people remember that they are reading something that wasn't originally written in English, that they're reading a co-production, as it were. So um, if... And I also think it can kind of expand the, the target language. It can expand English and make English a little bit more flexible and playful if people are reading these slightly unexpected structures. It must have a kind of cognitive effect of like opening up the mind as well because you're running up against friction of some kind that is like that your your, your brain has to kind of slow down a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, in the second part of the show, we go on a very different flight in a very different direction. Big Think 
does video interviews uh, with thinkers from different fields. And our video team, every episode, picks a couple of short clips for us to watch. I have not seen them. Olga and Jennifer have not seen them. And we will just watch one and then discuss and watch a second and discuss and see where we go from there. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. Okay, so this this video is on a theme that I do not recall being covered at all in flights, but um, <laughs> we'll see where we go. This is Alyssa Quart, and it's called Co-Parenting, a Lifestyle Innovation from Our Broke Middle Class. So part of why this is such a problem in America right now is the cost of childcare. Right now, it can be up to 30%, even 38% of a middle-class family's salary. We're talking uh, in New York City, or New York, 10,000 to 30,000 uh, per year. So if you're thinking, you know, oh, a middle-class salary is between 42 and 125,000, that's a huge chunk of anybody's earnings. So how are we gonna take care of our kids? How can we actually pay to have children? One strategy of some of the people I spoke to, they just had one child or uh, some of the people I spoke to weren't parents yet and they wanted to be, like a school teacher who drove Uber on the side in San Francisco. And it, what he made, what in other places would be a middle class salary, but because of the cost of living, the cost of rent, he had to take a roommate, he had to put off having a family, he was in his 40s, and he had to drive Uber where he was grading papers while he was, you know, at a stoplight. Actually, I talked to um, uh, a black educator and and someone she's you she calls herself indigenous other people would call her native american and they both had started this something called co family life which would mean that they're living in collective housing with other families with children and partially the reason they did this was because their parents having been working class african americans and indigenous people didn't own homes due to the history of racism so they had to instead you know, rent in expensive cities like outside Boston. So what they did was they shared their homes with other families and raised their kids together, fed their kids together, did pick up and drop off together. None of them were involved romantically. And this went on for many years. And it's a, it's a new trend um, called co-parenting that I write about in Squeezed. There's one way we could say, oh, this is just, this is bespoke and depressing. Like, oh, we're thrown back on ourselves. We have to parent collectively and barter and trade because our government doesn't take care of us. But another way to think about it is it could be revolutionary, like this is an, a new family formation where you don't have to be romantically or biologically connected to other parents, but you can st still live together in a community with them and share you know, cost of living, but also responsibility. I met a bunch of them and it was I was actually really envious, you know, it's like, because a lot, yeah, a lot of middle class life is pretty isolated. So I think things like co-parenting, in some ways, it's two birds of one stone, because it's like there's the isolation and then there's the economic fragility of being middle class, middle class family. So it's an economic necessity co-parenting. There'll be people who are computer programmers who I met, or a teacher, or you know other kinds of professions. Like they weren't uh, a social worker. You know, they they were classic middle class jobs. But because of the expense of these cities and also because of some of the isolation of being uh, part of a middle class family now that you, where you might not be near your biological family, these co-parenting formations were like really kind of beautiful in a lot of ways. I mean, I also saw the dark side because, <laughs> I mean, it, definitely some of those collectives didn't last, you know, I mean, it's hard. 
I grew up in a kind of commune. My parents were teachers and they uh, were working at a kind of folk university. So that it was 60s and it was quite atmospheric, I would like okay. to say, <laughs> this, this, uh, this, the, the tried new patterns of living together with uh, late, students. Late 60s. Late yeah. 60s. So I remember... And uh, as a as a child, I think that it gave me very much. Uh, I was a, a daughter of many people, you mm. know. So I was, I, but I never have this, never heard this word co-parenting. But now I I can I can think that it was co-parenting. Of course, this is not the same. But anyway, what I'm thinking about this material I saw. Uh, yeah. I think that I didn't expect that uh, in states can be such a situation that people has to do. This is not the choice, but rather, you know, some the economical situation yeah. can push them into the just desperation to to create such a mm, new, new configuration. Yeah, or configuration. Uh huh. In your situation, did it did that commune and did that folk university last? And if not, no, why it, not? it it the, the it was the end of this idea on the beginning of 70s mm. when the government changed. She talked about these were African-American and Native American families coming together out of the legacy of apartheid and, you know, in America and the and economic and educational disadvantage. But this can happen. I think this can be a general trend maybe mm-hmm. in the next 10, 20 years. I would like to repeat, it is different, <laughs> big difference between when you choosing a way of life from your freedom and then when you are have you have to choose this way because there is such an economical situation. And it seems to me it's sometimes from this economical situation, it sounds dangerous for me. I can imagine such, such a society that being rich you have to have a family and uh, fix this, this this family as you um, would like to to fix and you are free in this uh, in in your choice and then you have the the level of poor people who are pushed to live in in such a way right. and they are not free anymore so that that's, that's sounds right. dangerous like from from uh, science fiction novels <laughs> yeah i mean and it's happening in it's happening in a context of inequality growing mm-hmm. inequality in america and it's also but it also has this other meaning i guess because of this historical idea in america that we should you know this coming from the 50s and the and the like after world war 2 this idea that we were all going to you know be able to live in in this incredibly modern and mm-hmm. kind of luxurious and mm-hmm. independent way driving cars on the highways mm-hmm. and whatever so i mean the people who are forced into this situation not only are they stuck on one end of a split economy but also they are they are having to live with the consequences of a failed mm-hmm. dream that mm-hmm. they feel they have a right mm-hmm. to what is optimistic that people try to <laughs> resolve the problem to do something to invent something new yeah yeah mm-hmm. so this is canadian astronaut former astronaut chris hadfield and the video is called Astronaut's Guide to Risk-Taking. Everything worth doing in life has risk. Learn to ride a bike, learn to walk, 
When I was a kid learning to walk, I fell and cracked my skull. But I needed to learn to walk. Taking a test, getting married, getting a driver's license, all of those things, they give you an improved capability or an improved richness in life, but they all come with a degree of risk. That is exaggerated if the thing that you want to do is fly a rocket ship. Rocket ships are dangerous. They're, it's a controlled explosion. If you drew a cartoon of a rocket, what it would be would be a bomb with six seats on the top. I mean, rocket ships are crazy dangerous. On the first flight of the space shuttle, when Bob Crippen and John Young were sitting there back in 1981 and they blasted off out of Florida, now that we go back and we look at what the actual history of the space shuttle was, their odds of dying that day in the first eight and a half minutes were one in nine terrible odds. One in nine. I mean, look around you at, at 10 people and realize that just to try that one in nine times, they would have died. They got away with it and we learned a lot from it. But even when I flew on my first shuttle flight, on the 74th shuttle flight, we'd learned enough things. We'd improved it. But the odds of dying that day for my crew were still one in 38, which is no insurance company would be happy with. It's hard to get life insurance as an astronaut, actually. But, but the question you really need to ask then is, do I want to learn to walk? Do I want to ride this bike? Do I want to get married? Do I want to learn to drive a car? What risks are worth taking in my life? Because even if you decide, okay, I'm gonna take no risk, I'm gonna stay at home and hide under my pillow, there's still risk with that and you're still gonna die eventually anyway. So it's kind of a measure of what was worth doing in your life and therefore what was worth taking a risk for. Once you've got that behind you and said, okay, I'm gonna be an astronaut, I'm gonna fly a rocket ship, that's a risk I'm going to take. Now it changes your whole job. Your job is not to be afraid. Your job is not to be an, an incompetent, nervous passenger. Your job now is to defeat the risk. Like when you learn to ride a bike. If you just stay as a passenger on the bike, you're never gonna know what to do with the handlebars and you're never gonna master riding a bike. And once you can ride a bike, you know, you've got a freedom you never had before. And rocket ships are just the same. You have to decide what risks are worth taking and then start changing who you are, learning how to turn the handlebars so that you can make this thing do something that otherwise might hurt you or kill you. And then once you've got that done, it can take you to places and give you richnesses in your life that you never would have had access any other way. And, and in my case, when you make it through that launch, when you've guided that rocket up through the atmosphere and the engine shut off, suddenly you're in the rarest of human experiences. You're weightless and the world is pouring by at five miles a second and you can see uh, across uh, an entire continent and, and you're, you're peering into something that is brand new for humanity. So uh, I think it's worth asking yourself, what risks are worth taking and once you've decided to take them, then change who you are so that you can win, you can defeat, you can master that thing and open a door for yourself that otherwise was just shut. This is just such a bizarre juxtaposition, these two videos. I don't know if that is part of the fun of this. Um, I, the, it's probably unintended, but that is part of the fun, hopefully. So what, the first thing is they're both so American. So it's kind of 
crazy to be <laughs> to be sitting here with our illustrious international guests talking about these very very American things that are also kind of polar opposites in terms of their perspective. Mm. So here we have this kind of radical individualism, this embrace of absolute freedom and exceptionalism and this idea of like the priority being what do I get out of the world and out of the universe and how can I best exploit those opportunities? So right. risk taking is all about my experience and maybe my personal growth. There's also this very American idea of self-improvement. So this this trajectory of the self. So you start out as an inexperienced self, you become an experienced self, and you're then a winner. He even uses the word. <laughs> so he's Canadian, you said, but still it's kind of the same philosophy. Yeah. I think he worked for NASA, so... And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who, because of structural inequalities and because of a system kind of running rampant, an economic system, capitalism, basically Western capitalism running rampant, there's a possibility of like taking a risk so that you advance yourself in a market when your family is starving because it literally has no access to vegetables. Your or... whole life every day is probably characterized by risk in that kind of situation, but the reward is not soaring over the vast <laughs> cosmos, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This juxtaposition between walking and going in, in to the universe on the rocket right. is a, such a false it doesn't work like this walking is something very natural which is coming to us you know uh, naturally and um, traveling into the universe and in in a rocket is completely something completely um artificial mm. inventing so you you cannot make those two things uh, in compare compare those those two to think and then if you underestimate uh, uh, this juxtaposition, but, uh, then you see that entire um, lecture of this guy is false. I mean, the other thing that I was skeptical about is this this hierarchy of risk, risk and reward. I mean, this is a very American idea, this idea that you should push yourself to the most extreme possible risk. And I think that that message is very dangerous for a lot of people and a lot of like children growing up, for example, who either might take risks that will kill them for no good reason or <laughs> or who are maybe more shy and maybe need to learn more gradually. It just feels like a threatening, threatening philosophy. A threatening male patriarchal <laughs> philosophy for young alpha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, yeah, yeah. Males. Yeah. And speaking of alpha males, one of the things that I noticed in your book is that there are a lot of women in the book that would likely have been left out of the story of history, like the daughter, the daughter carrying on mm -hmm. the work of the anatomist, the daughter of Suleiman is his first name, and mm -hmm. he's like a former servant to an Austrian emperor, emperor. Mm -hmm. um, who is now like stuffed and on display. And she keeps writing these messages that appear throughout the book to the Austrian emperor. And they just go into the, the void. You know, we assume they were never answered. Mm -hmm. 
And this seems to be something that runs throughout the book, these women that are like doing heroic or important things that, you know, will just be kind of swept mm -hmm. away into the river of history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the two figures you mentioned, they are uh, historical, really. So they exist somewhere in the past. Mm -hmm. So, but nobody remember about them. But also in the book, there are many uh, female figures which are coming from my imagination. Yeah. Of course. But um, there is no society, there is no history without women. So there is no journey without women coming to New York today morning in the, our compartment in the train, there were like 80% of women. I don't know why. So, mm. But why not to write about women in of our course. life? It, it should be something very natural. I noticed that too about the train this morning. It was really perfect to be traveling with Olga in that compartment because also all of the women were working. Mm -hmm. So they were all very obviously mm -hmm. on their laptops kind of frenetically mm -hmm. <laughs> typing or making mm -hmm. calls and they were all really confident. And This was, was the train from Boston, uh, Boston to, to Washington. York, uh, to Washington. Yeah, just I think it was just a coincidence that we ended up in in this compartment that was no yeah, boys allowed. Women are present everywhere, <laughs> so it must be also present in the novels. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And I and I also I think there's an interesting connection. There's the one story about the woman, and now I'm committing the typical male uh, error of history by forgetting her name. Um, but she is the mother of Petya. I remember, I remember Petya's uh -huh. name and I forget Anushka's <laughs> uh -huh. name. Eh? Um, interesting. But so, Pet, so Anushka, that's really interesting because Anushka, Anushka is the like caretaker for Petya who is de developmentally disabled. He has some, ex he's sick. Um, and she, and she sort of skips out on her life. She just kind of wanders off into sort of temporary homelessness. And we have another example of uh, in that story um, where they go on vacation to Vis, is it mm -hmm. called? To an island. It's a husband and wife and child. And the, the wife and child disappear. disappear. Yeah. I find that a really powerful image. These women just kind of like disappearing from their lives. In the, in the case of Vis, like the husband knows She's lying about mm -hmm. where she was, but he has no control, mm -hmm. you know? It's a kind of taking power, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. I think those are also really good examples because there's also this idea of the, quote, bad mother, end quote. And so Olga's playing with that, too, to go back to the, the first video again. Right. Um, there's this expectation that the mother is going to be the doting one, Um when in fact, in the in those two stories that you mentioned, the mother is the one taking rest and thinking about herself and prioritizing herself and kind of maybe abandoning, at least toying with the idea of being reckless, being untrustworthy, unfaithful, that all of the things that women are not allowed to be. Right. So, yeah, but that's definitely something that always drew me to Olga's work too is that she really is so interested in untold stories um, and especially women's stories. And in her new book that I'm translating right now, which is called The Books of Jacob, okay. which is about a real historical figure named Jacob Frank, who was the leader in the 18th century of a Jewish heretical sect. Yes. 
a kind of male story that becomes much more female in Olga's telling. And it becomes so much more interesting because of this multiplicity of voice and perspective that she mentioned earlier. It is the people whose stories go untold that in fact were responsible for history playing out as it did. It's often not like the one loudest person whose names we might remember. That's not to refer to your Petya V. Oh, feel free to refer. I'm I'm here. I'm open to the critique. No, it wasn't. But um, the books of Jacob does so much, but just to name one of the million things that it does, it really shows how the forces of history are so many and so unpredictable. And there can be so many people at work, so many women at work in this case, who are intentionally or unintentionally shaping the future with their actions or with their words. You know, I wonder whether the problem or part of the problem is this obsession with exceptionalism and sort of power and importance in history, period. History has been written by men, right? And all of the stories are of the these exceptional men, you know, and many of them quite horrible, but they are powerful in that context of making large numbers of changes happen in the world. And we have the same obsession, even when we kind of shift the focus and say, let's try to bring in people that were ignored by history. We still want to be like, okay, look, see, that person was important. That person was important. But I wonder whether the problem is this interest in importance, period that some people are more important than others. I love that. I love that idea. Yeah, I really, I, lo- I love your point. That'd be a wonderful place to, <laughs> to end the <laughs> podcast, actually. Okay, so Olga Tokarczuk and Jennifer Croft, thank you so much for being with me today. I've very much enjoyed talking with you. Thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for being with us this week for Think Again. Uh, I really do want to emphasize that Olga Tokarczuk's Flights is one of the most interesting pieces of uncategorizable literature that I've ever read. And this book was written 10 years ago, but it's very, very interesting that this episode is coming right after last week's with Jill Lepore and in the context of everything that's happening in American culture right now around the voices of women that have been silenced in the past. Jill Lepore also surfaces many forgotten female voices uh, and stories in her history of the United States, these truths. I hope you're enjoying Think Again, and I hope you'll consider taking a moment to rate or review us or both on iTunes or wherever you listen. And uh, feel free to write me an email at jason at bigthink.com with any thoughts that you have about the show or any ideas that we're discussing. And come talk to us on Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast, our private Facebook group. And we'll be back next week with something very, very different.